What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 104 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with bullying expert Amanda Nickerson. Thanks so much for checking out my show. I, I just appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to adult education. This show is all about learning new things or maybe learning more about something you're already familiar with. I speak with experts across all fields to talk about health, education, technology, mental health, and really just about anything that I find interesting. If you'd like to support adult education, the best way to do so is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on right now. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. Word of mouth can really help inspire new people to check out the show. October is National Bullying Prevention Month. I don't know about you, but I suffered from some bullying when I was younger. I had two specific bullies that followed me through most of my elementary and middle school years. And you know what's funny about that? I remember their names specifically, but I couldn't tell you most of the names of the kids that were in my classes during that time period. I also remember in elementary school, the school wanted to enforce the importance of meeting new people, so they made an effort to split up friends and put them in different classes. Now, to my dismay, I was always split from my friends and put in classes with my bullies. They kind of just followed me around. But we're talking about something that happened to me some 30, give or take, years ago. Back then, bullying was kind of seen as a rite of passage. You know, it makes you tough. Or as adults would say back then, it puts hair on your chest. I still don't really know what hair on your chest has to do with dealing with mental and emotional abuse, but whatever. Bullying has evolved and changed so, so much, especially in the digital age. When I was young, my bully stayed at school. Once I left school, I was home with friends and family, and it wasn't a part of my life anymore. But today, those bullies come with you everywhere because of social media, the internet, and just how we're all connected 24-7. Now, the conversation around bullying has picked up in recent years, which is great. We love to see that. So I want to have a conversation on this show. I reached out to Dr. Amanda Nickerson. She's the director of the Alberti Center for Bullying Abuse Prevention at the University of Buffalo Graduate School of Education. Talk about just a, a wealth of knowledge. This was a great conversation. I really hope to work with Amanda again somewhere down the line. I reference this in the conversation, by the way, but I want to point out just for the purposes of this discussion we're talking about kids and bullying i know that bullying goes on with adults as well i don't want anyone to think that we believe it ends in high school but for this conversation we're discussing kids and bullying so please enjoy my chat with dr amanda nickerson hello there hi how are you i am great how are you doing i'm doing pretty well thank you good i'm glad to hear that i was just watching your ted talk from how, how long ago was that Oh, it was a while ago now, maybe seven years or so. I'm always fascinated by those because you're not allowed to use a teleprompter, right? Like you have to memorize all of that. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. I don't think I could ever pull that off for that amount of time. Oh, I bet you could. <laughs> I don't know. You well, give me you know, too much I, credit. My uh, classes are two and a half hours every week. And then when I present, I sometimes am doing eight hour workshops and things. So actually only having to talk for 15 minutes is no problem. I also shows that you're a master of your craft. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, Amanda, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. The more that I've looked into your background and your research, I'm so glad that I reached out because I think you are just going to be a wealth of knowledge here on this topic. And I'm just excited to learn more from you about what you've seen and you've learned over the years about bullying and how things have transitioned here. Great. So let's go start from the beginning here, just so people can get a background on you. How did you find yourself doing the research and the work that you're doing today? 
Sure. Well, I've always been interested in emotional and behavioral concerns uh, for children and youth. And then also I got into the field of school crisis prevention and intervention. So how do schools prevent crises that they can prevent? And then if and when they occur, how can they go in and sort of minimize the traumatic impact? So oftentimes think people think of those high profile things like school shootings and things like that. But what we found is that the daily stresses that some students face um, interpersonally, including bullying, are uh, some of the most chronic and pervasive and problematic kinds of concerns. Um, and so certainly with my position it, as director of this endowed center, we're really focused on how to understand uh, and prevent a bullying and related forms of abuse. So that's a little bit about how I got interested. I'm curious because a lot of times when people find themselves studying something like this or in a field like this, it's because they have a bit of a background themselves. So did you find yourself going down this, this path in life because of something you experienced when you were younger? I wouldn't say that for me, it was directly. Um, I certainly, I, I have an experience that sometimes I share, which I'm happy to share if you want me to, but I don't have to about when I was bullied in uh, actually late elementary school for a very short period of time, actually, but it was quite devastating. But I also reflect back and on times when I bullied others as in middle school, um, and or when I sort of participated or didn't do things when I could have. So I definitely have some of that in my background, but at least at a conscious level, I didn't go into this to sort of, um, you know, work through any of unresolved issues that I had. I know sometimes people follow their passion and experience that way. And I wouldn't say that that was necessarily the case for me. I'm glad you mentioned something about how you've experienced it from both sides, where you have a bullying experience, but you also can think of times when you were the bully, because I do want to come back to that um, in a second, because I think that's kind of an interesting point to make, because I have a similar experience myself. Uh, but just really one more thing on your background and your resume, if you will, is you're the first director for um, UB's Alberti Center for Bullying Abuse Prevention. So is this a new, I don't want to say a new thing, but this is something that was created and you kind of got to jump in at the helm? Yes. I wouldn't say it's new either. So it goes back to about 2010 when the endowment was established and then they did a national search for a director and I was fortunate enough to um, receive the position and I started in 2011. So um, I don't know if you'd consider that new by today's standards, but uh, certainly it was um, it was a newly established center when I stepped in at the helm. What's great about that, too, is I was going to say that I think over the last 10 years or so, which would kind of track with when this was created, that's when the conversation about bullying really started to come back to the forefront, because I've always felt like as traumatic as it can be, bullying was considered sort of a rite of passage for so many people. Like you just you had it, you dealt with it and you moved on. But bullying over the years and decades has you know changed and it's changed with the times. And now it's just it seems to be so much more traumatic to the youth of today because you can't just leave it at school. It follows you everywhere you go. Uh, maybe 
this is a trick question for you, but can we kind of define bullying in some way? Is there a way to define what that means? Sure. It's not a trick question at all. It's, you know, what we usually start off with. Um, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, actually convened an expert task force back in 2014 to come up with a uniform definition of bullying, partly because it seemed like it was being misused, underused, overused. Um, and it was remarkably similar to the definition that Dan Olveus, who is considered the father of bullying from uh, Norway, came up with decades ago. And we talk about three components. Um, one is that it's unwanted aggressive behavior. Um, that aggressive behavior can take different forms, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, it also involves a power imbalance between the youth who are perpetrating and the youth that is targeted. So that could be due to strength, social status, being the member of a, a majority group in terms of race or ethnicity or, or other kinds of characteristics. And it's also repeated or highly likely to be repeated. So it's not just a one-time event, but rather a pattern of behavior. Repeated is a good word. I remember when I was in elementary school, I had one in particular bully. And our teachers and our principal decided it would be good to break up friends to make sure they were in different classes to meet new friends. So what ended up happening to me is that I was taken away from my best friend that I was really close with and put into a class with my bully, which did not work out very well for me for a couple of years uh, there. And I understand the intention behind it, but I don't think you know they were paying attention to what kind of sort of mental torture that could also put on a child too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, you know, it's all right. We've, we've moved on, but it's also interesting too. Like you mentioned before, you have a story that you remember very vividly. I have a coworker of mine who I believe is 65 and she will still bring up times being bullied when she was in elementary school, middle school. And sometimes I think to myself like, man, that seems like so long ago, but I don't know if everybody understands how much that can stay with you over time. If you have a particularly traumatic experience, that can really stay with you. Yeah, it certainly can. Um, I mean, just as you said, anecdotally talking to people, it's amazing how people can remember. There's so much we don't remember, but if you ask someone about their experience, most people can recall that in pretty vivid detail. Um, and we know from the research that it does have a long lasting impact, that it can impact people years and decades later in terms of their distress, in terms of the way that they view themselves, um, you know, symptoms of depression and anxiety. It doesn't mean that if someone has an experience of bullying, they are destined to have, you know, these awful outcomes. But I think it really speaks to, as you said earlier, that we used to maybe think about this as a rite of passage, but it's it's certainly not. It's certainly a harmful um, experience for people. For sure. And, and we can touch on this a little bit more too, if you want. But again, going back to say I'm 41. So you, you go back about 20, 30 years to when I was in school, Bullying was different. You know, bullying was getting picked on in class, getting maybe pushed down on the playground outside of school or whatever, but you left it at school. Like when I went home, I was with my friends, I was with my family, people that loved me and cared about me. I didn't have to worry about that bully once I walked out of those school doors. But now with the way technology is and the way social media is, 
bullying happens in a million different ways and ways that will follow you not only while you're in school, but can follow you for a very long time in your life as well. You know, if, if there's a sexually explicit photo or something that gets out there, all these different things. So I, I don't want to say that it's more traumatic now than them, but my personal belief would be that it would be more traumatic for children now going through it. I mean, everybody deals with it differently, but just for me looking at it, I, I can't even imagine having to worry about that stuff coming with me forever. Yeah, that's definitely the topic that schools and parents and students are much more concerned with now, I would say, than um, than ever before, really. They're talking about the cyberbullying and the more and even the more subtle forms of bullying if it happens um, in person. So a lot of times when people are cyberbullied, they are still bullied in person in some ways, but you're absolutely right that with cyberbullying, it can reach such a large number of people. It can be permanent. Um, the anonymity and, and difficulty tracking um, make it uh, particularly concerning as well. And then, as you said, that sort of 24-7 not being able to escape from it as well. So, you know, when we started doing research on cyberbullying, I, I guess I would say 10 years or maybe a little bit more. It seemed like a lot of bullying researchers, myself included, would say, you know, cyberbullying is another form of bullying. It has a lot of overlap. You know, there isn't really a, a lot of evidence that it's that it's much you know, worse than other forms of bullying. But I do think that that's evolved over time. Um, I, I do think that the face-to-face -face is still extremely damaging, sure. but if you look at studies, there are some that show that cyberbullying, even above and beyond other types of bullying, does have negative effects. And we can't escape those unique features of it that really do change um, the the way that we look at it for those very reasons that you that you talked about. I'm not a researcher like yourself, but I have found in looking at people that maybe have bullied me or people that I've witnessed, a lot of times the bullies, if you will, have something else going on behind the scenes as well. So they're kind of taking some of that and putting it onto somebody else. They're taking their emotions and they're putting them onto somebody else as opposed to dealing with them or trying to find another way to deal with it. Um, is that something that you find in your research too? Yeah, definitely. Something that somebody said to me in a recent presentation that I've now been repeating a lot because there is truth to it is this saying that hurt people hurt people. You know, the idea that there, there is some issue oftentimes um, with the person doing the bullying, either they, this has been modeled for them, or they've been, uh, you know, treated abusively or violently in some way, um, or they are struggling with a, a stress or a problem um, of their own, usually in, an, in a more ongoing way, and they are you know, targeting others. Although we also have to acknowledge that there are many that are have a strong desire for power and control, that instead of having this like low self-esteem that we sometimes think about, they're actually more um, sort of narcissistic and really, you know, see themselves as 
overly inflated in terms of their importance, but they're very quick to feel defensive if if someone insults them. So, you know, there's definitely, and we could say that that means that they have their own problems and they certainly do, but I think it's a little different than viewing it as someone that's you know, really been been hurt or is suffering in some way. I think, you know, some of those personality characteristics we tend to look at as, uh, you know, less empathic, more, um, you know, doing whatever it takes to to hurt or harm others. So I think that that's important to acknowledge as well. I like that phrase, hurt people, hurt people. And it, it's it ties in perfectly to something else I wanted to talk to you about, because when I look at my history, as I mentioned, I had a bully that uh, took me down a few pegs. And, you know, in the school hierarchy there, you have that. You have that in schools. You have your sort of hierarchy that people view things as. And I remember when I look back on my childhood that after I would be bullied, in some ways I would turn into a bully for somebody else because I would look at, you know, so-called the low hanging fruit of somebody who I may in the social hierarchy may be below me in that, or maybe viewed as below me. And I could take that out on them in some ways. And I never really thought much about that until just recent years. I was like, man, you know, I, I may have been somebody's bully and I hope, you know, hope so much that they're not carrying anything with them to this point in their life. But, but it's so interesting to think about that. I was hurt and I took that pain and I expressed it by taking it out on somebody else. Yeah. And we see that. We see, you know, cycles of violence. It's it's pretty when we look at intergenerational abuse. And, you know, that's a different thing in, in many ways. But um, we do see this phenomenon. And certainly there are... Um, people who have been bullied that go on to bully others. We call them uh, bully victims oftentimes and um, or, you know, provocative victims. You know, there's some that if they've um, they seem to engage in behaviors that sort of seek out, um, you know, some of the bullying behavior. I think that's a little different than people who have experienced bullying and then, you know, find a weaker target. But um, I think it just shows the the variation in there isn't really a, a strong profile of who necessarily is going to be engaged in this. But these are some of the outcomes um, that happen from it and the way that people um, deal with it and deal with their hurt. I know we've been primarily talking about younger people and the youth, uh, but bullying can be anytime, anywhere. I know I've had bosses that have certainly bullied employees in my office before. So it is something that happens all along, but I, I guess I kind of wanted to make sure the fo- the conversation was focused more on children. I just didn't want anybody listening right now. i be like, wait, I'm getting bullied now and I'm 55 years old. Like it does happen. We do acknowledge that and we understand that, but this conversation for the purpose of it is more geared towards children. Cause I also do want to get into something that I heard you talking about in your Ted talk and that's social emotional learning. And I feel like this conversation has been happening a lot more recently, even though that TED talk I was watching was from about seven years ago. I think people are talking about this idea more now than I ever remember. Now, I'm not a teacher. I'm not in schools. I'm a bystander watching from the side. But the conversation of people helping to educate children, not only on the actual education, the academics, but also about how to deal with those emotions, those feelings, and everything that goes along with being a human being. Yeah, I think we've come a long way in that in terms of, um, 
you know, research in terms of state standards and guidance in terms of what schools are doing. You'll talk to teachers who have been in the field for 20 years and they'll acknowledge, you know, we didn't we didn't really talk about these things, relationships and and trauma and connection and recognizing and managing emotions. And and now it's it's for many schools and many educators, it's really acknowledged the relationship between even these social emotional competencies and academic achievement. So the more that that students are getting that and, you know, I know that there is backlash and criticisms from many directions uh, about it, you know, some about isn't this the role of the the parents and family and certainly, you know, it, it takes a village. But I think some of the thinking behind social emotional learning is that these are teachable skills, just like we teach math and reading and other skills. And we know from employers that these are really important skills. We know from anybody in a relationship that these are important skills that someone's able to identify, recognize and manage their own emotions, that they're aware of the perspectives of others, um, that they're able to, you know, problem solve and make decisions. You know, these are some of the skills that we want people to go out in the world uh, to do to, uh, you know, contribute to society and um, and and to get along uh, with others. They don't have to be friends with everyone, but how do you resolve conflict? How do you manage your own frustrations? You know, those are really critical skills for survival and success. And, um, you know, there's emerging research. It's not all out there yet that, you know, teaching these social emotional competencies can reduce violence, aggression, bullying, and victimization and make schools more positive climates uh, to be in. Well, and just as you touched on there and just to get people on the right foot when they go into the quote unquote real world. Like I, I uh, was fairly intelligent in school. I did pretty well. And every time I would pass, say a math class, I would get pushed on to the next math class and the next one and the next one. And looking back on it, I, when am I ever going to use calculus in my life? You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad I took that class. I don't remember anything from it, but I think I would have been better served to have sort of like a business management class or something, or, or how do you deal with people in the office? I don't know what you would call that, but how do you deal with people in the workplace kind of class? Like some more practical education for how to survive with other human beings that are around you on a day-to-day -day basis. That's a conversation we have in our households a lot. Uh, you know, there's definitely adolescents saying, I don't know when I'm going to use this stuff. And, and, you know, I'm the same with calculus. My son is in calculus right now and he's always asking me about, he loves it. And he's always asking me things and like, <laughs> I don't remember any. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not, but I just, you know, I don't know how to do that. But, you know, some of the the core practical things, and we talk about what we, you know, we wish that we had learned about how to, you know, invest money and the importance of retirement savings and, you know, how to, how to write a good cover letter and how to interact with people if they have different goals or they're on a power trip or, you know, those are some of the things that, that we really have to use in our day-to-day -day life, as you said. And, you know, education in some ways is really, um, 
it's evolved and changed, but it's really uh, based on some antiquated systems and some of this, well, we do it because we've always done it this way. And um, so there's, there's definitely room for improvement and change and we're seeing it, you know, um, slowly, but surely, but there's still, I think, a long way to go. Uh, you can use this quote with your son if he finds himself in a very tough place with calculus. My grandfather uh, was the engineer for the very first nuclear submarine for the United States. And one day I was struggling with something on calculus and he took my hand and he said, I designed the first nuclear submarine for the United States Navy. I've never once used calculus in my entire life. <laughs> I was like, well, if you haven't used it, why would I ever use it? <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. You know where I've really seen a lot of people talk about social, social emotional learning? Uh, it's been kind of in the conversation with sort of sexual health and sexual education. Because what you're hearing a lot now or what I'm seeing a lot now is not only should we be educating children on you know what to do in proper situations, how to be safe, but also how to understand what a healthy relationship is, how to understand how you should be treated, what makes you happy in this relationship. Instead of worrying about what you see on TV or whatever is out there in media, understanding what is important for you. And I had never once in my life thought about it from that perspective, but that is so it seems so logical, you know, understanding what makes you happy will put people hopefully in better relationships and understanding what that means can set people on such a better path than just like, oh, well, I saw once in a video that I'm supposed to get my hair pulled or whatever. So I guess that's what I got to do now, you know? Uh, so I, it's interesting to see how that conversation has been definitely shaping into things. Yeah. Yeah. This is somewhat related, but maybe not really, but we, um, we had a grant to study a child sexual abuse prevention program um, that was actually um, published by Committee for Children, who does you know great work in social emotional learning, and that was with little ones. So that was preschool through grade five. And I have to say, when we first, it was a, a curriculum-based program, you know, six weeks of programming, but done in a really developmentally appropriate way where children were taught, you know, some basic safety rules, including their right to their their body and for people not to touch their private parts and that they had a right to say no and and stand up for themselves and at first teachers were quite wary about you know talking about these issues and addressing these issues and we found after implementing it that you know the teachers were like this is this is so important and our kids were like ready for this and and wanted to talk about it and learn about it and we actually found that implementing that even though it was pretty focused on that topic um actually created a more positive school climate as well as teaching kids you know the skills that they would need um in order to you know be assertive or get help in those situations so i you know i think it's somewhat related to you know how teaching these skills can be really important for um all aspects of safety and relationships i want to shift gears a little bit into intervention and what adults can maybe do to help if they're seeing something happening or if their child is talking about bullying and different issues going on at school. One thing that I imagine it's got to be really difficult is 
navigating a world where you're trying to impress some thoughts on your child or on children about how it's good to be nice to other people and how it's good to have respect for other people. But then meanwhile, in popular culture and in media, we're sort of celebrating in a way bullies. You know, when you see the the president of the United States on there making up nicknames for other people, you know, whether it's Crooked Hillary or Sleepy Joe, or whatever. I mean, nicknames, that's a form of bullying, like the way that that's treated. And when you see someone like a president doing that, it's hard to tell a child, well, you shouldn't do that when the most powerful person in this country is also doing that right now. It's such a challenge. I think people are are struggling with that, you know, all over. And and I think we have to be real about it. I mean, again, my my kids are older, but, you know, with I believe we do have to be honest and have open conversations. You know, they're going to they're very discerning. So they see and hear this, they recognize the inconsistencies. So, you know, especially with older students and adolescents, we kind of talk about what that means, where that comes from, sort of what we're seeing in the media, how social media is being utilized, how some people are actually, you know, pretty strategic in saying these negative and outrageous things because, you know, getting negative attention is still attention and, you know, how it it falls into the values of our society, how we're perceived by other countries. I mean, when we go and travel internationally, we have taxi drivers and others that have comments about, you know, the United States and what kind of reflection we have. And so, you know, I think we still need to continue to send the messages and model um, in our own behavior. Uh, but, you know, we have to, of course, recognize that there are people in power that are abusing it, that are, uh, bullies themselves that have gotten, you know, uh, have achieved a lot of success because of it. But, you know, is that the right way to get it? Is that what we want to model? How about the people and the effect and the impact on them? You know, how can we support it? What do you see when you see things like that? So it's it's a tough one, but uh, but I think we have to just keep on, you know, chipping away at it and and showing in in our actions and our modeling that that's not something that we condone. This goes back a few years, but I remember the the pop culture blogger Perez Hilton and basically uh he made his entire fortune and his empire off of bullying essentially, you know, marking up people's photos and making comments about them on his blog and everybody laughed and thought it was funny. And then one day he came out and he was like, "Wow, I'm I'm kind of an a-hole. Like I didn't realize how awful this was." And he stopped. And it, you know, looking back on it, I know he benefited a lot from it, but I I always appreciated the fact that he at least owned it. And he took ownership and said, "You know what? I I'm a jerk. I've made a lot of mistakes and I'm I'm looking to move forward." And I I, I kind of wish other people would also take that same path and just recognize it, acknowledge it, and then move on. Yeah. And kind of showing other ways, you know, uh, someone had said this was a while back had said, like, since when did humor have to be about cutting others down? Sure. You know, I mean, is that really what we find funny? And then again, we talk about the I mean, in my own relationships, I I joke around with people a lot and a lot of it is teasing and like poking fun. But you sort of 
you learn those limits. You learn those things that you can laugh with others about, that you can laugh at yourself about. But then you also realize there are things that you don't touch and for for good reason. And you back off if if that's going to be hurtful or harmful to people. But those are pretty nuanced um, distinctions. And we certainly have a lot of role models for, uh, you know, probably what what not to do. Based on our conversation here today, it sounds like the idea of social emotional learning is a big thing that can help in schools to help kids understand more about uh, getting through the bullying and understanding how to treat people better all around. But also something that you and I were emailing about when we were setting up this conversation, you mentioned bystander intervention and bullying. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because that's something I'm not as familiar with. So if you wouldn't mind going into that, that'd be great. Sure. I love talking about bystander <laughs> intervention. <laughs> So what we find is that some of these bullying prevention programs and social emotional learning are really, really, um, it can be a more helpful for younger students. So elementary, early, middle, um, you know, that's when we see a lot of the impact. Not that we don't see impact later on, but I think it's a little bit uh, tougher. Um, and Contrary to that, we do see that these bystander intervention approaches can be more successful in high school. And I have to say that a lot of colleges and universities are using this as well. Now, their focus is often on um, sexual harass or, or sexual assault and, and training people to see the potential signs, the risk factors, and to intervene in safe ways. But we've really extended that to look at bullying and sexual harassment. So the premise behind it is that it's pretty challenging to change perpetrators of bullying. You know, changing behavior is very difficult. Um, so only focusing on people that are bullying or only focusing on supporting the victims is losing a really important piece. So we know that about 80 to 90%, maybe even more of these bullying interactions take place when peers can see and hear it. But less than 20% of the time do these peers do something to try to stop it. So the idea behind that is that educating people about this phenomenon. And it's a really, you know, well-accepted phenomenon in social psychology, this bystander effect, that when we are with a group of people and we see something that may be harmful, we're very likely to not do anything. And part of it's because we think, well, other people are around, why should I take responsibility? or we fear retaliation, or we're not sure what to do. So there's all these reasons that go into it. So there's some evidence that if you teach people the model of bystander intervention, which includes five different steps, a lot of these we just go through really automatically um, once we know how to do it. But we have to first identify that there's a problem, whether it's bullying or sexual harassment. We have to interpret it as a problem that requires help or intervention. Then really importantly, we have to assume responsibility. We have to say, I'm the one that's going to do something about it. We need to know what to do, and then we need to do it. Um, so when we kind of train people about this, we go through what are the things that get in the way of each of these steps, 
And then we teach some specific skills, including intervening directly. And we practice that in different ways that are comfortable for people. Some people, uh, you know, are fine going up and saying, hey, leave them alone. That's not cool. Others are more comfortable using a technique like distracting. So getting the person away from the situation, changing the subject, um, reaching out and supporting that person who's been impacted because we know that targets often have such an adverse reaction because they feel like they're lonely and rejected by others. Um, and then reporting it, you know, either to a trusted adult in the school and or if it's cyberbullying to the social media provider. So, you know, giving people those options about what to do, um, we're finding it can be really helpful. Now, the research still has to progress to see that this is going to have an impact on really reducing the bullying, but we do know that we can teach these skills and that students um, can generalize them to other areas in their lives, just recognizing this phenomenon and, and teaching them the options that they can use to, to kind of do the right thing in difficult situations when our inclination may be not to. I also think you were talking about retaliation, and I think, too, especially in schools, if you, again, going back to that social hierarchy, if you're in a group, bullies tend to be the leaders. Bullies oftentimes are the, the big man on campus, if you will. If you're part of that group and you see someone bullying somebody else, it's a risk from a social standpoint to stick up for somebody else because that other person maybe doesn't have the social clout. I know this sounds very petty of me to say, but when you're in middle school, social clout can be everything to some kids. That's that's a tough decision to make. It is. It is. And I think we have to recognize that and be really open about that. But that's part of why we try to give people different strategies um, because not everyone is going to be able to, and not everyone should, quite frankly, be the one that's going to intervene directly. There are some inherent risks, you know, both in terms of socially, but also potentially physically and, and otherwise. And I think we could do a lot of damage trying to, you know, there were some campaigns like a few years back that showed kids like with tape over their mouths and said, you know, if you're not doing anything, then you're just as much a part of the problem. And I really reject those kinds of messages and campaigns. Um, I think it's more about recognizing this is something that that happens. And there are options. So part of what I think is so powerful in this is the reaching out to the person who's been impacted by it. Um, and again, some people say, well, that's not stopping the bullying. You're just sort of comforting the victim. Is that really a bystander intervention? And I would say it is because you're seeing something and you're doing something about it. So is that stopping the bullying? Not necessarily, but it's going a potentially long way to make sure that person isn't going to be as negatively impacted by it. And also having that support, you know, a, a bully is going to be less likely to target someone who does have that support and does have others around them because then they're not going to be seen as um, as vulnerable or susceptible as well. I always think the feeling that most commonly goes through 
a child's head if they're on the receiving end of bullying is loneliness. Like they feel alone in this situation. So like you were just saying, is it intervention for someone to reach out to that person and just like see if they're okay? I would agree with you. I would think it is because it shows them they are not alone. Like there is somebody else that gives a damn about them that actually wants to make sure they're okay. Even if that person didn't stop the bullying in the first place, it still shows there is a caring there. Yes. Yeah. I was giving a, a talk to a group of adults and this was going back over 10 years, I think. Uh, and we were talking about this very thing. And a woman approached me afterwards and said that she had gone to her 20th high school reunion. And she said that she had been bullied pretty relentlessly throughout school. And someone came up with to her at the reunion and said, you know, I always felt so bad about how you were treated and what happened to you. And I think the woman who approached her hadn't been one of the perpetrators, but she said, I just never knew what to say or do. Uh, and this woman said, you know, if, if you had just done that, that would have made all the difference because without anybody even saying, I'm sorry that happened, but I don't know how to help it would have sent the message to me that not everybody felt that way about me, that I wasn't alone in the world and that in and itself would have been such a buffer. So, you know, I try to share that story and that message just to, so people know, um, just being seen and heard and, and recognized, even if you don't know what to do, uh, can certainly go a long way. It's not going to solve all of the problems, but it's a it's a tangible step that that people can take. Our kids are a lot stronger than we want to give them credit for, and they're a lot smarter than we want to give them credit for. So I think I think you've got such a great a great mindset of being able to educate them on these social situations, they will be able to step up a lot better than we probably think they can. They will, they will stand up for other people if they understand the importance of it. You know, like I, I think kids are much more in tune with what's going on emotionally than we really give them credit for. Yeah. I um, agree. Well, Amanda Nickerson, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've been wanting to have a conversation about uh, bullying for quite some time. In fact, I had interviewed uh, Melinda Moyer. She had written a book called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. And I had asked her afterwards, I said, hey, this was a great conversation. I really want to kind of look at, you know, sort of the a-holes of the situation. I want to talk about bullying. And she recommended you. So I'm so glad she did because this has been uh, a great conversation. If people want to find out more about you or if they want to find out more about your work, is there a place that they can go to do that? Sure. Go to the Google. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you Google Amanda Nickerson and or Alberti Center for Bullying Abuse Prevention, um, our information should should come up. So, you know, I have a faculty web page, email address, and then, you know, publications in Google Scholar. And, um, you know, if you want to see the TEDx talk, just put in Amanda Nickerson TEDx. So Google should should help out. Well, Dr. Amanda Nickerson, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with me. And please keep up this amazing work. I, I know we're going to make a lot of headway through people like you that are doing this research and uh, really trying to push us forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for your attention to this issue and the great conversation. Huge thank you to Dr. Amanda Nickerson for her time today. I urge you to look her up because she's got some great work available out there, especially on YouTube. And thank you to all of you for checking out Adult Education, episode 104. Until next time, be well.